A story is told of a man who could not give a convincing explanation about his broken arm. He kept muttering some story about accidentally sticking his arm through the car window that he thought was down. That's the public version. In private, he confessed that it happened when one day his wife, who had some potted plants out on the patio, at that time a garter snake crept up and got into one of the plants in one of the pots. The pots were brought into the house with the plants, and sure enough, the wife is in the house and sees the snake slithering across the floor. The story continues. I was in the bathtub when I heard her scream, he related. I thought my wife was being murdered, so I jumped out to help her. I was in such a hurry, I failed to even grab a towel. You might want to cover your eyes here. When I ran into the living room, she yelled that a snake was under the couch. I got down on my hands and knees to look for it, and my dog came up behind me and cold-nosed me. I guess I thought it was a snake, and I fainted. My wife thought I had a heart attack and called for an ambulance. I was still groggy when the ambulance arrived, so the medics lifted me on the stretcher. When they were carrying me out, the snake came out from under the couch and frightened one of the medics. He dropped his end of the stretcher, and that's when I broke my arm. (laughs) Revelation 6 is not just about the beginning of a bad day uh, like this poor fellow in our story, but a bad period of time seven years. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 6, let me just give you a brief review on what we have learned so far. Our key verse that drives our vehicle through three time zones is found in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 19. There in the time zone of the past, John is commanded to write the things that he had seen. Those things refer to the vision that he was granted of the resurrected and glorified Christ. Then as we transition to the second time zone, there we are introduced to seven literal churches that existed in John's day, the things which are. Those seven churches in the realm, the area of Asia Minor, Jesus assessed and gave a judgment concerning each of those churches. Uh, We saw with the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love, a promise given in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, essentially because they had kept the command to persevere Jesus was going to keep them from the hour of trial. And listen very carefully, that would come upon the whole world. In essence, to the church of Philadelphia, and because what goes to one church applies to all churches, we will be kept from that period of tribulation that will occur on the earth and will last seven years. As now we move forward to the third time zone. 
Revelation chapter 4, we observe God the Father sitting on the throne. He has the right to rule, and since he has the right to rule, therefore, he has the authority to judge. Then as we transition, and it's a unit of thought, chapters 4 and 5, to the question that is asked, who is worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth to open the book that was in the right hand of God. And John wept, and he wept much, because no one was found worthy. But all of a sudden, a lamb emerges on the scene, and he's described as standing, the posture of victory, because the lamb, Jesus Christ, had conquered death. He goes over to God the Father and takes the book, out of his hand, and from that book proceeds seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. This goes from Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. If you will, from the Old Testament book of Daniel, this is the 70th seven, a period of seven years. It is referred to as the tribulation period. Now, as you have turned to Revelation chapter six, uh, we're gonna look today at the first four seals, which form a unit. Robert Thomas writes, the first four openings have features in common. Each is preceded by an utterance from one of the four living beings and followed by the appearance of a colored horse and his rider who has some sort of power over the earth. This puts the first four into a group that is in some ways distinct from the other three. Now, with that being said, let me go ahead and read you today's text, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. Very sobering passage, is it not? Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the promise 
given to the church of Philadelphia that we will not enter into this period of time. Father, this is a period of wrath according to Revelation 6, even in verse 17. And I thank you that we are promised as church age saints not to enter into God's wrath, whether it's tribulational or eternal damnation. You have privileged us. But Lord, this should put a fire under our seats to see the need to witness to each person we come in contact with. Because the truth is, if they do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, and then the rapture occurs, that person will enter into the tribulation period. So Father, speak today as only you can, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let your eyes observe the first three English words in verse 1. Now I saw... Uh, You should be quite familiar uh, with these words that derive from Kai Adon. Do you recall those words from chapter 5? We saw four dramatic scenes in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in 5.1, 5.2, 5.6, and 5.11. Here these words show that we have a continuation from chapter 5, but a new vision is now given. We have the lamb, and the lamb opens one of the seals. It's so intriguing that in chapter 4 of Revelation, God is called worthy. But in Revelation chapter 5, we saw in verse 9 that also worthy is the lamb. He is the one who enacts the judgment on the earth. He is the only one found in heaven and on earth or under the earth who is qualified to unleash the judgments that are about to be poured forth. It's, it is he. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. God had a voice like thunder described back in chapter 1. And now we have a similar setting. And each one of the four living creatures gives the command to John to come and then to see. Each one will give this command and the invitation for John to take a look at the horse that is being described. And speaking of a horse, verse 2. And I looked and behold a white horse. And some people jump to the conclusion, oh, this must be Jesus. Because in Revelation 19 and verse 11, he comes back riding on a white horse. At the end of the tribulation, we are with him, by the way, following him. This is how Christ comes back. But may I say, the white horse is the only point of similarity that we have. Even the crowns worn by the riders are different. Here in Revelation chapter 6, the crown that is worn is the victor's crown, the Stephanos, and I'll address that in just a moment. In Revelation 19 and verse 12, it's the diadem, the royal or the kingly crown. This is the imitation Christ, or perhaps even the imitation Christ that will emerge in the first half of the tribulation. As well, notice he who sat on it on the white horse had a bow. The bow without the arrow seems to indicate victory without 
fighting. That's key here. When we look up in the sky after it rains and we see the bow, it shows that God is no longer at war with the world. Similarly, I believe that is what we're seeing here in the sense that this rider is going to conquer, but without even offering a blow. There's no physical fighting at this point. And one other thought, the word here for bow, and then we see in Genesis 9, we also see over in chapter 27 of Esau, who went out hunting with the bow. Well, to hunt game or perhaps even people if necessary, but it's the same bow. The seven seals of Revelation that we'll study in chapters uh, 6 through 8 parallel, and this is so very important, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 concerning the activities that will happen before his second coming. Now, what I want you to do throughout the sermon is to put a finger and put some kind of marker in Matthew chapter 24. Now, this is so essential, and please get this. Matthew chapter 24 is not pertaining the rapture. Jesus, back in Matthew 16 and verse 18, has just introduced the church. The church is not in existence in Jesus' day. The church doesn't come on the scene until Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. What is happening is a parallel. Jesus' words given in Matthew 24 with that of Revelation 6 through 8 with the seven seal judgments. So pick it up here with me, please. And again, keeping in mind that we're looking at the imitation Christ, Matthew 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And the word here for temple, and the word temple is used twice in verse 1, is not naas, referring to the holy place and the holy of holies. This is the Aaron, referring to not only the temple, but all the buildings. Herod the Great, in trying to curry favor with the Jews, kept building on to the temple. So the Disciples of Jesus are enamored with this structure, and here we're going to see that his disciples came to to show him the buildings of the temple. How they must have been shocked when Jesus said to them, this is Matthew 24, 2, do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus when speaking, and the writer picks up Matthew, the Ume construction. The strongest way to say no or not in the Greek New Testament. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples there's not going to be a stone standing upon another here. Verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Notice the questions that they asked. Tell us, when will these things be? Can you give us a time frame, Jesus? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Now observe verse 5 and think about what we just saw in Revelation 6. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many the parallel we have the rider 
on the white horse. Either the Antichrist proper, most likely, or the personification of Antichrist parallels perfectly with Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 24 about the tribulation period. Now, back here in Revelation chapter 6, I want you to see, it says down here in verse 2, and a crown, this is given to the rider of the white horse, was given to him. Again, the idea of the Antichrist having victory. Uh, by the way, let me just explain how this works. Even today, in the church age, we have Antichrist, small a, if you will. Those individuals that are opposed to Jesus Christ. Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. They're really against Christ, although they might not view themselves that way, but they are. Because if Jesus is the only way to God, and then you're saying and you're teaching that he's truly not God, how can anyone get to heaven? Little children, it is the last hour, the last period of time, speaking of the church age there. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, he goes on to point out that even now there are many Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is in our church age. But it will all point to the ultimate Antichrist who will emerge during the tribulation period. And what do we learn about the Antichrist, it goes on in verse 2 to say, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Let me just read you the two Greek words, conquering and conquer. It's nikon and then nikese. Can you hear the word Nike? Uh, Nike, our um, famous name brand here in America and around the world, derives from the meaning of victory. The idea here of the Antichrist is that he's going to conquer without even landing a blow initially. Uh, Dr. Ryrie, Charles Ryrie, writes, The method of conquest, however, does not seem to be by open hostilities, for peace is not removed from the earth until the second seal. One might label this judgment then Cold War. For some of you that are a bit older, remember the 1980s and the conflict between Russia and America. It was a Cold War era. And what that meant is that you had two world powers opposed to each other, but thankfully it came short of exchanging blows. Can you have victory without military conquest? Well, think about our Lord Jesus Christ. He came and did he not conquer? John 16, just prior to his own death, Jesus says, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. In this world ye shall have tribulation. See, all of you. But be of good cheer, for I have, listen to the word, 
overcome, same word, overcome the world. Jesus overcame by laying down his life and taking it back up again. He makes us victors, as is called in 1 John 5, 4, and 5. So John 16, 33 clearly shows that Jesus overcame the world, and yet he never physically struck anyone. This is what the Antichrist does. In Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we learn about him making a covenant with the nation of Israel for seven years. You see, he is going to control and have victory without initially landing a blow. We'll see that he will break that at the midpoint of the tribulation. As we get to Revelation 12, we'll learn more of the implications of that then. So, that is our first seal. Transitioning now down to verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, here you go, come and see. See the command given, come and see. Jesus... The lamb opens the second seal and the second living creature summons John. The description now in verse four, and another horse, fiery red, went out. Another here is not heteros, it's alas. It's not another of this different kind, heteros, like heterosexual. This is another of the same kind. You see, the second horse has... A connection with the first horse. And that's why the word another of the same kind is used. But this horse is fiery red. And I'd present to you, even from our context, this represents blood shed. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Uh, underline or highlight the words, it was granted. It was granted. They are important words that keep appearing in the book of Revelation. You see, although God is sovereign and in control, yet he permits the powers of wickedness to do their dastardly deeds, but only for a period of time. If I can explain some of this to you uh, by Luke chapter four as an example. In Luke 4, in verse 6, the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and says, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. See, Satan is the prince of this world and he has certain authority, but it's limited. Even in Revelation chapter 12, when he gets kicked out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation, Michael throws him out. When he hits the ground, he sort of shakes it off and then it says that his wrath is intensified. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. We have here Almighty God permitting these things to take place, but only for a limited period of time. So that's why those words, it was granted, literally it was given, is so very important. And we'll see those repeated throughout. The peace that is taken away is from the entire world. And that's significant. And that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. I hope you have good eyesight or at least a good pair of glasses. Look at the word people uh, there in verse four. You'll notice this in italics, which means it's not original. The translator always has a tough 
job because he has to take the Greek language and make a smooth English sentence. Not easy to do always. This is an italics. See, the idea is not there's just a general fighting going on between people, but this is organized warfare. How do I know this as well? It parallels Matthew 24. So let's go back over there. Matthew chapter 24. This time come down to verse 6 and you'll see the continuation. Matthew 24 verse 6. Jesus says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Organized warfare parallels Revelation 6 with Matthew chapter 24. And now we have seen the second seal. Back in Revelation 6, verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. And I looked and behold a black horse. The black horse, according to context here, is the personification, or if you will, the coming of life of famine and hunger. Observe that it says, and he who sat in it had a pair of scales or balances in his hand. Why? He's about to weigh the food. And you might ask why, and we'll see that answer in just a second. Verse 6, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, and perhaps this is the voice of God because the four living creatures, as we saw back in chapter 4, verse 6 and 8, were surrounding God. Notice the statement, a quart of wheat for a denarius. In essence, a day's wage would only buy enough food for one person for one day. Can you really imagine for just a moment working a 12-hour day and then at the end of that day getting paid and you can buy one loaf of bread? That's the idea here enough to feed just one person for one day and then he goes on to say and three quarts of barley for denarius a barley is a is a cheaper grain so if you decided to scale back so that you could feed more people he could buy enough for three meals or perhaps to feed a family for just one day it's pretty sobering You think of how people would do today with their cell phones and even their Nike shoes, right? How do you afford a pair of $250 Jordans if you're making enough to buy one loaf of bread a day? Notice it goes on to say, though, not everybody is uh, tremendously impacted and do not harm the oil and the wine. The rich can still afford luxuries because this is a partial famine. Again, this corresponds to Matthew 24 because in verse 7, the second half of the verse, it talks about famine. You begin with wars and what comes after war? Famine. Down now to verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. This is also pertaining to divine judgment. And I looked and behold, a pale horse, the personification now of death. 
And the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. Death naturally follows famine. You have wars, you have famines, and then you have death. Now, Hades can refer to the place of the grave, or it can be a reference to departed spirits who were separated from God's presence. Perhaps the latter is the idea here. Not only do you have wars, but then you have famine, but eternal separation from the Almighty. And you go, wow, this is getting really bad. May I say to you, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth. For a moment, let's do the math. Let's say right now there are seven billion people on planet Earth, and then the rapture happens. We'll just estimate that a billion people are going, we're down to six billion people. Well, if you have a fourth of the population of the Earth dying, that is one and a half, not million, but billion people. So power was given to them over a fourth of the Earth to kill with sword. Remember the warfare back in 6-4? And perhaps also the killing of one another just to get food because you have a time of famine. There's also hunger here. Why? As a result of the famine from Revelation 6-6. And then death. The word death here is, is rather intriguing. Thanatos can, through the context, mean a particular manner of death, like fatal illness or pestilence. Charles Ryrie writes, perhaps by plagues of diseases, which often accompany war. We have to go back for our parallel, do we not? Okay, once again, Matthew 24, turn there please. And this time come to the second half of verse 7. Matthew 24, 7b. Jesus says, and it will be famines, pestilences see the striking and earthquakes in various places but now observe verse 8 all these are the beginning of sorrows in other words this is just the first half of the tribulation we haven't even gotten to the latter part of the tribulation called the great tribulation so that's why Jesus himself in Matthew 24, uh, 22 says that unless these days were shortened, no flesh would survive. So these are just the beginning of sorrow. So what we're studying here is just the beginning of the tribulation period. And you see how bad it is. Unprecedented judgment. Unprecedented amounts of death because of the wars the famine, and everything that follows. And it goes from bad to worse because there in Revelation 6, 8, it says, and by the beast of the earth. I love the ocean, but I'm so thankful that the ocean knows its boundaries. I love what lives in the woods as long as it stays in the woods. I can enjoy at a distance what's in the jungle as long as it stays in the jungle. But we will see 
that as the tribulation goes on, the wild beasts being impacted by all these things are going to leave their natural habitat and then cross the boundaries that they normally don't cross. In other words, watch out. I think to express just how bad this period of time is, turn with me to the book of Amos. Uh, as you uh, are turning Amos, if you can find Ezekiel, several books just to the right, you'll find Amos. And I want you to go with me to chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Amos 5, beginning in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord could refer to a local judgment, but most of the time pertains to the tribulation period. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion. How scary is that? And a bear met him. You finally somehow get past the lion when you're running and then you catch your breath and you think, wow, I survived that one and there are bears waiting for you. Or as though he went into the house, he thinking it's safe under the roof and around having four walls around you, leaned his hand on a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark and no brightness in it. Having said all of this, let me introduce today's main point. God judges those who reject the Lamb. God judges those who reject the Lamb. The Lamb has been very kind, has he not? When we saw him in Revelation chapter 5, he is the one whose posture is standing. He's conquered death. Why did he conquer death? Because he was going to die for us and offer us the gift of eternal life, but he needed to come back to life in order to offer the gift. And we see that he is worthy, and he is worthy. But I want you to think about what the Lamb has done for the world Turn with me uh, to a familiar book and passage, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3, to think about the love of God and how much he cared for the entire population of the world that he would dispatch his own son to be born of a woman in order to die for the sin of the world. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, notice the broad invitation there, believes, that's your key word, to put your faith in 99 times it occurs, pisteo, from the gospel of John. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have. You might want to underline the word have. It's a present tense verb right now. The cults love to dangle eternal life just sort of out there. They don't want you to put faith in Christ and him alone for salvation so they can keep you beholding to them. And that's usually how they make their living. That's how they make a living off of you and religion. But Christ gives us eternal life immediately upon believing on him. Verse 17. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the first coming. Second coming is very different. The first coming, he shows up in order to die for the sin of the world. Second coming with the two-edged sword to put down his enemies and to establish his kingdom. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. What a great statement. It is so nice to be set free. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus when you believe. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. As we are contemplating Revelation chapter 6, 1 through 8, and then transitioning, Lord willing, to rest of the chapter 6 through chapter 19, we're going to learn a lot about the wrath of God, the tribulation wrath of God. But may I say, if that's bad, how much greater eternal condemnation and wrath. Now that we're in John 3, I want you to think about this and the implication of Jesus dying for our sin. John 3, down to verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Once again, a present tense verb right now, your possession. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but... The wrath of God, present tense verb, right now abides on him. That's scary. Can you imagine having the wrath of God hovering over you? Well, the wrath of God did hover over Jesus Christ. From noon to three, there was darkness over the land in Matthew chapter 27. Because Jesus, our substitute, was going to take upon himself the sin of the world. And all that sin and the wrath of God was going to be placed upon Jesus Christ. What an extraordinary gift from God to grant us his own son to satisfy his wrath. That's propitiation. Christ taking upon himself the wrath of God in order that you and I could be justified. That wrath is something else. But if you are here and you don't know Christ as Savior, you have not yet been relieved of the wrath of God. It comes when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law perfectly, who satisfied the wrath of God through his death. But that forgiveness can only be appropriated through faith in Christ and his finished work. And if you reject the Son, then the wrath of God could be tribulational for you if you are alive when the rapture occurs and don't know Jesus Christ, into the tribulation you go. But then we saw the progression. We go from wars, the famine, to death, and perhaps the idea of the word Hades there means the place of departed spirits separated from the presence of the Almighty. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ who alone can bring you into a right relationship with God that the condemnation 
is no more. And the wrath is something that you will not experience, whether it's the tribulation wrath or the wrath of God. I'd like to leave you with one verse. It's 1 John chapter 5 in verse 12. John writes, he who has the son has. See the word has there? Eke, present tense verb. He who has the son has right now life. But he who does not have the son of God does not have right now life. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could satisfy the wrath of God. He's the only way to God. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And you're not going to go to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Do not experience, my friend, the wrath of God needlessly by rejecting Jesus Christ, but rather put your faith in the standing Lamb of God who truly has taken away the sin of the world, which means your sin. Believe on him, and today you will have also the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the standing lamb. Amazing. That the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He became our substitute to appease, to satisfy the Almighty and his wrath. I thank you that through Jesus Christ our condemnation is gone and will never experience wrath. Pray for those who don't know you that even right now they would not dawdle but put their faith in Jesus Christ, the only one that can deliver them from the wrath to come. Thank you for what you have done in our lives through your son and I thank you for what we will be kept from with the tribulation But give us a zeal, my Father. Give us a passion to reach the lost and train the found because our time is short. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.